Welcome to See Uncovered, a place where you'll find the stories of proven entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ashley Henschel. Welcome to See Uncovered. Today joining me is Chris Mealy, Managing Partner at Software Pricing Partners. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. It's really nice to talk with you. Could you give our listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Well, I my name is Chris Mealy. I uh, ended up starting a career in consulting. So when I graduated, it was all about uh, Ernst and Young and Anderson Consulting and Deloitte and sort of the Price Waterhouse. That was what they called the big six. And then I ended up starting my own business. And then I ended up uh, buying the business that I have now, which is a consultancy that specializes in uh, high growth technology software companies. And we help them with their pricing and how they make money off of their intellectual property, which is combined of their products and their services and the insights that they gather. What made you want to start your own company? Well, that's probably, that, that's not something that happens overnight, right? So I think I, I think there was a couple catalysts that happened for me. So the first was when I was at uh, Ernst & Young, I was involved in what they call engagement economics, which is, you know, billing and profitability. Mm-hmm. And so you just can't help but to run the numbers and say, gosh, you know, I, I made the firm a million dollars last year and I got a bonus for 15 grand, which don't get me wrong. You know, this was back in the early nineties. That was a monster bonus, but you just couldn't help but to think like you were maybe on the wrong side of the formula. So that was probably the first moment when I thought, huh, well, this, this, this actually spurred me on to, to want to be a partner, to be on the other side of the, mm-hmm. of the uh, uh, equation there. And then I remember I was on an engagement. I won't give last names, except uh, I'll use this first name. His name was Gary. And, uh, and he had a, a, a briefcase phone. So this is one of the first cell phones. So imagine like the coiled cable and you're walking around with literally a, a phone the size of a briefcase. I mean, so mm-hmm. it's somewhat comical. And he in the restaurant (laughs) walks in for lunch with this briefcase. And I think this is the coolest thing on the planet, right? I mean, I was just like, oh my gosh, he's got a mobile phone, like a mobile, you know, it's like, it's almost, it's it's just huge. And so he sits down and he takes a call and he uh, has tears in his eyes and tells the story of how he was hearing while he was traveling that uh, his son started walking for the first time. And my reaction to that was, wow, like he's missing, like I'm traveling, I'm working for somebody like he's met. And that was maybe the first moment when I thought, well, maybe being a partner here isn't like all it's cracked up to be. And then finally, this would have been in the right before the internet boom, I, I started to get involved in internet things. And I really fell in love with the idea of it. And every time I tried to get the firm to focus on it, uh, it just wasn't becoming a focus. Mm-hmm. And there was a story that I had in college and in college, the chair of the computer science department, which was my degree 
he uh, he told the story of this thing called the autocoder. And when he was young, he worked for somebody and there was this, this is back in punch cards and things. And there is this story of the autocoder and the, the boss of the chair of my computer science department, my May of Ohio, told us a story where his boss said, look, technology will come and go, but there'll always be an autocoder. And it was a cautionary tale that he told me uh, be, be very careful. Technology changes so quickly when someone tells you they kind of know what's always going to be around or what is never going to be around. Mm-hmm. Like that's your first kind of red flag. So now going back to Ernst & Young and talking about the internet, I, you know, kind of talked about this in a lot of excitement. And again, I got uh, from another Gary, the story that, look, I've, I've seen a lot. This is my boss at the time. I've seen a lot of fads come and go. And uh, I got to tell you, this internet thing is, is, is a fad. I, I understand that you're really excited. About. I mean, this is like ridiculous to even <laughs> talk about or consider this at the moment. And nobody knew what was going to come, but I knew that it was fundamentally different. And I had enough experience at that point to know that there was a lot of opportunity there. And so once that conversation happened, I all of a sudden sort of cast that partnership as, you know, these are just a bunch of guys making a bunch of money but they don't really know, like they don't see what I see. They don't know. And like that really was the fertile ground that then set the stage for, I think I want to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And how did you get started doing your own thing? Did you um, find partners? Did, how did you market yourself? What was really your journey? Well, I didn't know what I wanted to do. That was the biggest problem. I, I know I knew I didn't want to do the, the partnership anymore. And And by the way, back then, you know, you worked, you know, 80 hour weeks. I mean, it was, this was not in accounting. This was in yeah. system design and sort of custom development and all that stuff. And it was just a, a lot of work with clients. And so you didn't really know what you wanted to do. And so as is the case with most, I think uh, people that get started, I had a friend and uh, he and I shared a dream of doing our own thing. We didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. He left Ernst & Young and went into his family business, which happened to be in the interior products business here in the US. And then one day he just reached out and said, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, it's like four in the morning. I'm, I'm on a project still up, you know, doing some sort of data conversion or technical thing. And then he's on the warehouse in the back, you know, routing out something. <laughs> and he's like, this is terrible. It's all paperwork and it's all manual. And oh my gosh, I just missed the days of Ernst and Young. And he's going on and on into, and, and in that conversation, I said, is there like, is that? And he said, well, actually my, my dad would pay you to build software. And that's how it started. And I said, well, instead of him paying to build his software, like what if we built software that everybody could use? And then that spawned many, a couple of years of really saying, well, how big is the industry and how many customers might they be? And we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know, you know, we were doing our best to take our, uh, uh, our research skills and apply them. And eventually we got a hunch that, that we could pull this off. And then, um, this was prior to the dot-com bust. So then I sacrificed, I guess it would have been two or three summers, I remember longingly staring out at the lake while my friends were water skiing and I was coding the first few versions of the software. And this would have been not the software for one business, but the software as we thought it would work for a lot of businesses. And so you're developing this stuff and redeveloping it, redeveloping it because, you know, that's just the way it happens early on. And then eventually we, um, uh, we had, 
won an award for the most innovative software and no revenue, no money. We, but we, you know, we were like, Hey, this is it. Yeah. So I was single and I said, why well, I, I think I can take the hit. And my, my business partner at the time, co-founder, he said, well, I, I have five kids, so that's going to be a little bit different story of me, but I can, I can do that uh, later if we can start to make some progress. And so we snagged a beginning of a contract um, and it was a big contract, several hundred thousand dollars. We were all very excited. And, but it hadn't landed yet. And of course, this was right before the dot-com bust. And when the dot-com started to shake out in 2001, 2000, um, then, then we had some huge challenges. And then it became, you know, do we, do we stop or do we continue on? And then at that point, my family was pretty much sick of hearing uh, about the story. And I said, look, we're going to either build this on our own or we're going to um, just kind of move on because I, you know, this is like insane. And so uh, I took a, a, another summer off and working two jobs, uh, we pulled in a developer that also had uh, some development chops uh, along with mine and my business partner play, kind of played tester. And uh, every day I would work a full work day and then I would drive down to Charlotte to go to his house. Wow. Um, I think that the, his wife wasn't super crazy to have us there. So I would never get a dinner and I'd pick up the phone and be like, can you please bring me some McDonald's? So we go in there, we'd code until like midnight, two in the morning and literally sitting in a room with our elbows touching and, um, and, and finally got uh, the full rendition of the software out and an actual transaction landed and it was brutal. I mean, it was a lot of work and a big lift and, it was just one of those things that, um, yeah, uh, not for the faint of heart, I think, because nobody was getting paid and everybody was cranking the hours all, all through the hours. Did you learn how to code in college or is this something you taught yourself? That was my degree was computer science. Okay. So I, I knew the programming languages and I uh, knew enough, you know, to be dangerous and then learned some more when I came out of Ernst and Young around larger scale system designs. And this was in, if you're familiar with technology, this would, you know, everything was deployed on prem. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, there was no cloud services. There was no AWS. There was no, you know, nothing like that uh, with Amazon. And so uh, it was a, you know, we were, we, we were uh, uh, shipping, um, you know, um, CDs sometimes to, to clients. But the, the thing that happened was you, you made a sale, everybody got excited. And then it became like, well, how, how do you make the next sale? Yeah. And that ended up uh, culminating in about 200 grand, a credit card debt for me and about a quarter million for my co-founder. And that was the days where you could, you can't do this anymore, but you could take a 0% credit card, crank up a big debt. So call it 30 grand and pay all the business expenses this is a wonderful way to build it. I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. It was, it was terribly, it may have given uh, anxiety issues long-term to, to many, but, um, and then you would transfer the balance. There was no transfer fee to the next card to get a 0% APR. And you would play this floating house of cards with multiple credit cards. And when credit card number seven came due with the 30 grand, you transfer it to credit card number 14 and you just, and there was a limit and it got really scary and I didn't make an income for three years starting in 2001 and then eventually made enough traction that we 
uh, attracted angel investment, uh, got funding and was, or was able to pay those debts down and actually then have payroll and employees and other things. But it, but it was uh, in a lot of ways, you know, the, you can't control the timing. The timing is really hard, right? It, mm-hmm. you, would, you could do as much planning as you want, but nobody knew the dot-com bust was around the corner. So that threw us for a curveball. And of course, nobody knew about the 08 market crash. That was another curveball. And, and those are things that you can get really caught up on mm-hmm. in the sense that you would maybe not start. But I think that timing and luck and a lot of timing is luck sort of just says, well, you kind of have to throw your hat in the ring and get started at some point. And that's kind of, um, I don't, I don't think we would have been able to build it if I was working one job and doing this all the time at night, you know, that was a bridging technique to produce the software, but at some point you do have to kind of leap in and you do have to give it your full attention. And that's really hard to do. It can, it can be uh, financially tough, especially if you're older and married with kids. I was single at the time. So I think yeah. that there's a moment, like if you ask me right now, uh, Ashley, you know, Hey, would you do it all over again? Yes. At that age. But if you ask me to go through what I did then now, not in a million years, never, <laughs> never, uh, brutal. How long a lot of work. It's just a were lot of work. you at that first company? And then when did you transition into um, the company you're at now? Well, at that company, I hired this company to oh. help us make more money, specifically mm-hmm. with how we priced and packaged and licensed our intellectual property software services right. and insights. And so we were moving from on-prem now to the cloud. So AWS was really new. Um, this would have been around the 08 timeframe. We didn't, we got hints that the market was sort of slowing down from some of our investors. And we used that opportunity to uh, then redevelop what was 10 year old technology, but build it from the ground up with the cloud in mind, because then we could deploy it much cheaper. I mean, we just ripped all the cost out of the system Mm -hmm. so we could kind of hit post-market crash, uh, the ground running. And the, um, the, the challenge there was when you do that, that's a whole new business model. I'm not sure we really understood the ramifications of that back then. And so we reached out to get expert help and the consultancies weren't much help because they weren't dealing in software at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we met software pricing partners. I met the founding uh, team and they just spoke my language. I mean, it was all built from, you know, this is the first consultancy in the world back in 1982. I wasn't here obviously, but Mm-hmm. that created software pricing it focuses on nothing but software and you know it's just very different pricing software than it is pricing an automobile or a train or a plane ticket mm-hmm. or something like that can you give me a gist of what the ins and outs of software pricing does well it's a lot of strategy of who ultimately you're trying to target and what you're trying to improve. So some customers are trying to just attract customers like mad. Others are trying to improve profitability. Others might be trying to survive inflation or mm-hmm. some might be trying to survive a pandemic or, or thriving more in the pandemic. Yeah. You know, if you were restaurant software in the pandemic, you're probably in the former category. If you were anything like zoom or some of the technologies we're using today, then you were going gangbusters during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. so, there's always a 
strategy and a goal and sort of a, an object, objective that you're trying to accomplish. But in general, software companies want to be paid fairly. And mm-hmm. that's really that turns out to be a really hard problem that we help them solve. And so it's a, it's a process around uncovering your value and having the confidence and perspective and the ability to communicate what that is. So maybe you decide you're the premium uh, player in your market and you're okay with charging for a premium. And that's a very different sales process and sales dialogue than if you decide, well, no, we're the lowest uh, cost provider here. We just want to get it through volume and that's going to be our value proposition. And so all that kind of comes together into the mechanics side that Jens then says, well, you know, what are we, what are we going to count if we're Zoom? Are we going to count users? Are we going to count the number of sessions we spin up? Like, how are we going to charge people for using our technology? That mm-hmm. turns out to be a really hard problem to solve. The next one is, uh, how are you going to package all this stuff up? If you can create anything you want in code, then is it all going to be just one product or do we break it out into a bunch of modules? Or is there like a basic pro and advanced version of this and why? And, and, yeah. and what is the revenue outcome of all that, which finally gets us into pricing, which says, if we make all these changes, how, how is that going to affect all the old customers and all the new customers? And our own technology is built on the AWS backbone and our customers use that to answer all those questions and with our guidance and with mm-hmm. our help. How important is it for companies to create pricing strategies to drive their growth? It's pretty fundamental. I mean, if you imagined starting your own company with your, uh, your, your friend, Ashley, that, that let's just say it was a software company. And then let's just say you were in the boardroom with your investors and they're like, how much money did you spend on product development? And you're like, yeah. answer that question. And how much money did you spend on the market research? Oh yeah. Yeah. How much money did you spend on designing how you're going to make money, you know, mm-hmm. the vast majority of founders today are going to say zero. And so the idea is des- designing a product upfront with, with the aspect of how you're going to make money is really, really important and fundamental. And those customers of ours and those clients in general, or software companies in general, because that's all we focus on. If they don't bring that into focus early it's an enormous waste of time and energy and mistakes and not to mention you might inadvertently launch your product and maybe you're in the thousands of dollars per year but you never really knew that you should be in the tens of thousands i mean my story was very much you know we started with software in three thousand dollars i just didn't know and eventually we would be selling half a million dollars of software i mean we just didn't know what we had created in the value that it brought. And so it took us a long time to figure that out. And then, you know, during that time of figuring that out and all the transactions that we did at $3,000, you know, to this day, I'm just like, Oh gosh, that hurts. You know? So, so you, you waste a lot of time. And when you come into your new business, I think time isn't endless, mostly because you might run out of steam. You know, I, I had it in me and a mom that always said, you never give up, you never give up. But arguably like it, it took a lot longer than it should have. And there's only so long you're going to go without pay. There's only so long you're going to go working those kinds of hours until at some point you're going to say like, this is maybe not the way I want to live my life because <laughs> I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And a lot of great products don't make it because of that. And so I think the clock is kind of ticking, especially if you 
kind of quit your job and you don't, you know, imagine quitting your job and imagining that you have a $2,000 transaction and how many customers you're going to have to get and what you're going to have to do. Mm -hmm. But let's just say up front before you did all that, you knew that you really had a $200,000 product. It's just a completely different business and a completely different uh, journey. And you really need to answer these questions really, really during the design stage and not you build it and then figure that stuff out later. We, we kind of, I think people kind of laugh at the idea that you'd build a product and hope that people would fall in love with it. But that's kind of like what we did when I started back in the early nineties. Now it's all about agile and, you know, the minimum minimally viable product. And there's just way more sophistication. So if you think about it, it is kind of comical that you would launch a product and have no idea how to make money on it. I mean, that's just kind of like, but, but that's the way in which our industry of software companies were, were organized and onboarded. It just pricing came a lot later and it's still relatively early as a discipline with software companies. Mm -hmm. Has there been a tool or skill you would say has contributed to your success? Well, I came out of school computer science and I, um, after we made our first sale, it was my business partner doing the sales and I was doing the product and then we hired, uh, I wanted to hire somebody to help. And this person just inadvertently happened to be a very, very, very deeply uh, experienced uh, sales resource and a bit of a sales coach, sales trainer. And the first thing he said is you guys have to switch. You need to be on sales. Your partner needs to be on product. And so we did that switch. And then uh, he, I engaged him early on. I'm a big believer that if you want to shorten the path, you know, you surround yourself with experts where you can learn a lot faster. And so we engaged, and it was really a tough decision, right? Like we didn't have a lot of money and yeah. we negotiated some fees with him and the fees really stung because they're coming directly out of my pockets. So I'm, you know, I'm younger, I'm coupled up with another guy from Ernst and Young. So my rent's like $200 a month and I'm in a crappy little place, but like it's working, right? So I'm, I'm allocating the money over to this guy who's recording, having me record every single sales dialogue I've ever had over the course of the next five years. And we build all these libraries and he goes through every call that I've ever made on every stage of the sales process. He's feeding me all these sales books. He's feeding me all these sales methodologies. And I'm just chewing this stuff down as fast as I can, because if we don't figure it out, like I, you know, it's getting kind of scary with the credit card debt. And so uh, I read some phenomenal books in different industries and kind of pieced together, um, winning strategies from different things that resonated with me. And then he would do these call reviews where he'd say, Hey, at the 17 minute mark and 12 seconds, like you said this, and did you see right now, like that unwound the whole deal? And like, why did you do that? And, you know, you don't really feel like you're the most amazing salesperson going, (laughs) going through that process. But after five years, it really helped me understand um, approaching science a bit more as maybe a, computer science person would, you know, during the market crash, I would, you know, in sales, you're supposed to pre-call plan. And I would take multicolored index cards and I'd lay out the conversation track on the middle of the conference table. Mm -hmm. And when we got to a certain fork in the conversation track, if they answered a certain way, I'd take all the orange cards and throw those on the floor and just wipe them off. And I had my headset on and I would talk. And that is actually how we made some of the sales through the market crash in a segment that just had no money. We actually had a customer that 
borrowed money uh, uh, in order to buy the software because it was going to make them money. And so those were really, really, really hard, high stakes conversations and negotiations. And so I would say that if I was going to identify something that would be a critical success factor, if you're a founder or the person starting the business, it's, if it's not you, you better have somebody that's going to be digging deep into sales and develop that discipline and really be hungry for that knowledge. Because that, that really is, I mean, it was funny. I had this advisor once. I don't remember his name, Tom, Tom was his name. And, uh, he was a big kind of jovial guy. He looked a little bit like Santa Claus and he would sit in this room and I was always so irritated with him, Ashley. And he would, he would, and then this was before we kind of hit our stride to get investors. And I was asking like, well, where did those come from? And he just, he would laugh. He'd take his hands. So imagine taking two of your hands and putting them on your big belly and kind of resting them there. And he'd sit back in his chair and go, oh, sales solves all challenges, Chris. That's what he would tell me over and over. Like, it doesn't matter what I asked. He, that, that was his sales solves all challenges. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that he's right. And, and so I think the, the earlier that you can master the science of mm -hmm. sales, either you as the founder or somebody that you implicitly and explicitly trust in that position that is locked in for the life of the journey, which is why I think it has to be one of the founders. I think you'll have a much easier time mm -hmm. at it. Now, my journey was a little bit rougher because I didn't know anything about sales coming out with computer science. Um, I could talk and I could program and I could do a lot of other things. And I had some experience from Ernst and Young to be able to communicate with clients and sort of high stakes situations over there when a lot is on the line monetarily and stress, et cetera. But I didn't, if you asked me, in fact, when they did an interview of the first customer that I sold, um, it was a little bit embarrassing. They said uh, the, inner, the, the person that bought the customer was uh, asking, uh, answering the questions of the interviewee, uh, the interviewer, and the interviewer uh, reported back that he said that, well, I don't really know um, what those guys were talking about. But Chris was talking so darn fast that I just figured at some point this conversation is going to go on forever. So for 3,500 bucks, I mean, sure. I mean, they seem like smart guys and if they didn't figure it out, what's, you know, what's the big deal. And so I, you know, that was, that was a really kind of low moment in my sales career. And I thought, oh, gee. And by the way, if you ask me today, are you a salesperson? I don't consider myself that. It's just mm -hmm. that I have that skill set from practicing it like crazy. I mean, I used to go wake, uh, not wake uh, surfing, sorry, that's my other favorite sport, but snowboarding. And uh, I would listen to uh, this CD series and, and his name is Thomas Fries. And he came up with this thing called question-based selling QBS. And he has an audio series, which is phenomenal. I think I've listened to this thing at least 200 times. And every time I listen to it, there's always something new you can learn. And there, uh, and I would be snowboarding and my friends would be laughing because they're listening to music and I'm listening to question-based selling by Thomas Fries. But that, that is what I think you, I think that paid off in spades throughout my career is the knowledge that I have, because now we have customers who have global sales teams of a couple hundred folks. And when we talk about pricing, well, guess what? That intersects directly with sales. So now I'm able to answer those questions in a level of detail that I would never have been able to do before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like in Steve Jobs' famous uh, speech there out uh, in California, you know, you can't really see a connective 
tissue of all the things that you've done, but I wouldn't be able to do this job had I not done those others. Mm-hmm. And, and this job wasn't, um, if you asked me out of college, oh, are you going to be in pricing? I'd be like, Mike, what are you talking about? That sounds terrible, right? But it actually is an enormous amount of fun. And, and you know, the most complicated work that, uh, that, that I think is, is out there is just really, really complicated. Software companies have a gazillion variables and things are really, really complicated. And I don't mean to say they're like brain surgery complicated, but they're complicated in very different ways that uh, are, are very challenging to isolate. Lastly, if you could give a piece of advice to a college or high school version of yourself, what would you tell him? Oh, that's a great question, Ashley. If I could give advice to a younger version of myself, what would I tell him? You know, I probably would say this. We are all taught never to give up. And that can express itself in really interesting ways. For example, you might build your business and you might be in one category of the industry and you're telling yourself, you never give up, you never give up, you never give up. And you have a tendency to lock on that vector. Mm -hmm. Um, It can also express itself in ways where maybe you're involved in a team and it's just not the right team, or maybe the person that is your co-founder just isn't going to get you there to the finish line. Or maybe the idea that you have, it's like, it's close, but it's just not quite resonating. And so there's this idea of just, I think not giving up is the energy maybe that you'll put into something, Mm -hmm. but in all those examples, the diversion of the energy to a different area can sometimes pay off in spades. And so you're not I would say, you know, reverse the lang- get rid of the language of you never give up, but, but pay attention. Uh, founders are notoriously in, uh, unable to ascertain their own risk mm-hmm. because you're just too wrapped in or you're too excited and it creates blind spots. And if I could tell you the number of times that now you, you know, redirect energy or kind of question, you know, Hey, all the way, even here, like even during the pandemic, you know, we just turned all the methodologies and we do this anyhow, but we really took a big focus on, well, why are we doing what we're doing? And is this value added? Is that value added? Is this necessary? Is that necessary? And we didn't have to do that, but we did it anyhow. And out of that came some amazing things. And so, uh, for the product and for the future of the company. So I, I think that it's, it's, uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur, there's a whole bunch of people who's, you know, first or second time, it may not be the next Tesla or Twitter and that's okay. You just want to get the experience. And the second thing I would say is I think having a career first, at least for a few years really paid off in space for me as well. So, cause, cause it gives you a perspective of what you're interested in, what you like, what you don't like, and that you'll take with you to whatever it is that your creation will look like. So I would say, don't be in such a hurry to eat the nut roll for a week in your kitchen. That's getting a little stale by the end of the week. Cause you can't afford, you know, any other food. That's uh, what happened to my older brother. <laughs> and uh, if you can um, maybe get some stability and experience under your belt, you know, there's plenty of time. They're, they're really, you know, we, we talked earlier that timing 
is important in kind of getting it started, but you also have a lot more time than you think, mm -hmm. as long as you get some stable revenues in. And so, you know, don't, don't be, uh, don't be too aggressive about pulling investors into your next big thing, because sometimes your next big thing, it can be all yours if you play your cards right, especially on the pricing front. So anyway, that would be kind of my my discussion with my earlier self. Great piece of advice. Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. Thanks for listening to See Uncovered. You can check out more at www.createeveryopportunity.org. Thanks again.